the Gospel of Luke is probably the least well-known of the four Gospels. Now, as a statement, that might surprise you. But once you get past some of the unique parts of Luke, such as the story of the Good Samaritan, of the prodigal son, of Zacchaeus, Mary and Martha, and a penitent thief on the cross, where Luke's gospel overlaps with the other gospels, we tend to know the other gospel accounts better. Yet often Luke provides extra details that add to our understanding. Take, for example, Jesus describing his disciples as salt. This is recorded in Matthew and Luke. Most people assume this relates to the use of salt in preservation and cooking of food. But Luke records the additional comment about the salt, about salt losing its saltiness, when it's neither fit for the soil nor the manure heap. And this implies that the metaphor is to do with the land and farming rather than the kitchen. Salt came from the Dead Sea, and it was full of potash and other salts, which could be used as a fertilizer in farming as well as as a disinfectant for human waste and the manure heaps. It was used it made good, to make good things grow and to stop bad things spreading. And that extra piece gains that, you know, just gives us that understanding that Jesus was saying to his disciples, you should be doing the same. Now, the Gospel of Luke was probably written about the early to mid-60s AD, possibly during Paul's period of imprisonment at Caesarea. And, as with the other Gospels, the book doesn't actually name its author. But from church tradition, and from clues that we can see in Acts, and in various of Paul's letters, there's little doubt that it was Luke. Luke was a doctor. He's referred to by Paul as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.13. And the training to be a doctor would have given him the skills in systematic observation and recording, skills that he put to good use in writing both of his books. We do know that Luke was with Paul during his imprisonment in Caesarea. Look at Acts 27, verse 1. And while Paul was in Rome, in Philemon, verse 23, and it was there that he would have known Mark at the very latest. And he was with Mark, uh, sorry, with Paul, up until the very end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 11. Luke, therefore, had plenty of opportunities, both in the area of Palestine and in Rome, to do some of the research he described in his opening passage in Luke 1, 3 to 4, where he said, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. How good a historian Luke was has been questioned by some scholars, but David Pawson, in his book Unlocking the Bible, makes the following point. He said, some modern historians have criticized his writings, claiming he was mistaken. But subsequent archaeological findings have always found in favor of Luke, to the point where he is now recognized as one of the finest historians of his day. The other thing to note about Luke is he is the only Gentile author in the Bible. Yet he wrote about a quarter of the New Testament. And as a Gentile, he was especially concerned to show that salvation had come to all flesh, to all nations. And the next obvious question is, who was Luke writing for? The book is addressed to Theophilus, which is a Greek name, meaning dear to God. It does seem likely that Theophilus was a real person. He was clearly important as the title, most excellent, 
Luke gives him suggests he was in some public office. It's the same title that was used for Felix and Festus when Paul appeared before them in trial in Acts 24, 3 and 26, verse 25, and suggests possibly he was in, a legal, in the legal profession. Possibly he was even Paul's defense counsel while he was in Rome. And there have been some suggestions that one purpose for the Luke and Acts was to be a brief to the court or the defense team as part of Paul's trial. The gospel was, however, certainly written for a Gentile audience. But despite his audience being Gentile, Luke starts his account in the Jewish temple, making clear Christianity was cradled in Judaism and that the coming of Jesus wasn't something that happened out of the blue, but was according to scripture, 1 Corinthians 5, 3 to 4. The fact that Jesus was the long-promised saviour is emphasised by the account of the angelic visitors to Zechariah in 1, 8 to 17, announcing the forerunner of the Messiah to his, in his son John, to Mary in Acts 1, 26 to 38, telling how the Messiah would come, and to the shepherds in chapter 2, 8 to 14, to actually announce the birth of Jesus. There had been no prophecy in Israel for about four centuries, since the time of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. But now it's heard again with the advent of the Messiah. We see it in Mary's Magnificat, chapter 1, 46 to 55. The Benedictus of Zechariah, 1, 67 to 79. And what's known as the Nunc Dimittis of Simeon in the temple. Now let thy servant depart in peace, 2, 29 to 32. And Simeon explicitly makes the point in verse 32 that Jesus is destined to be not only the glory of Israel, but God's salvation to the nations. Luke makes the point in these early chapters that something wonderful, something supernatural is happening. Jesus coming into the world is the great turning point of history, as God is working out his purpose for the redemption of all mankind. And this is Luke's key theme in his gospel, Jesus, saviour of the world. Although the story Luke is telling is set in the small country of Palestine, which is only about the size of Wales, it's a world event. Luke shows this by setting it in the context of Roman history, for example in 2 verse 1 and 3 verse 1, where he names the ruling emperors. Luke is also at pains to show that his account, and more importantly Jesus, his teaching, and the salvation he offers, was relevant to everyone, not just the Jews. This concept of universality was a revolutionary idea, and it remains so to this day. Think about it, even today, switching between faiths, if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or some other, in many cultures, many beliefs, it's not only rare, but actively and sometimes legally discouraged and forbidden. Yet Luke shows by what Jesus did and said, the truth that Jesus is the saviour of the world, not just the Jewish people, for example, uh, or not just those perhaps we consider today who are like us. Look at Acts, uh, sorry, Luke 13, 29. And people shall come from the east and the west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of God, said Jesus. And even more explicitly in chapter 24, verses 46 to 48, and he said to them, this is, thus it is written, Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, 
and repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. The early church only slowly grasped this, as we see in Luke's other book, Acts. But Paul summed it up succinctly in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And as he narrates the life of Jesus, Luke highlights a number of facets of Jesus' life and ministry. Firstly, he gives us not just Jesus' teaching on prayer, but of Jesus' prayer life. Luke includes three parables about prayer, about persistence in prayer, the friend at midnight in 11, 5 to 8, and the unjust judge in 18, 1 to 8. And one about our attitude when we pray in the Pharisee and the tax collector of 18, 9 to 14. But Jesus' personal example is even more prominent, especially before and during the great crises of his life. At his baptism in chapter 3, verse 21, Luke tells us that Jesus was praying when the Holy Spirit came on him and led him into the wilderness where he was tempted in 4, 1 to 13. Before choosing the 12 disciples in 6, 12, Jesus spent the entire night on the mountain praying before making that key decision. Before Jesus challenged the twelve about his messiahship in 9.18, who do the multitude say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Leading to Peter's declaration that he was the Christ of God in verse 20. At his transfiguration, Luke records that it was while Jesus was praying that he was transfigured. Before he taught his disciples to pray in chapter 11 verse 1, where presumably inspired by Jesus' examples, the disciples came to him and asked him to teach them to pray. And of course, Jesus prayed at the cross for his executioners in 2334. Despite the physical agony of just having been nailed to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And finally, committing himself to the Father in 2346 as Jesus gave up his life. Luke also shows shows us Jesus' care for and interest in people, especially the outcasts and low-status people. We see Jesus kept company with all types, from well-to-do religious Pharisees to despised and detested tax collectors. There were the women, who in that culture were considered low-status, had little legal worth. Their evidence was only worth half that of a man. They played an especially prominent part in Luke's account. Look at the nativity uh, narrative. We've got Elizabeth, we've got Mary, we've got Anna the prophetess. And later on, the women who minister to Jesus and and the disciples out of their own means who support them are recognized in 8, 1 to 3. We see Jesus showing compassion and helping women. The widow of Nain in in 7, 11 to 17, whose only son had died. Mary Magdalene and the others that he delivered from infirmities. The woman bent double by deformity, made straight at his word in 13, 11 to 13. By the way, enraging the local synagogue official because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath, possibly even his interruption to his preaching there in verse 10. By his attitude and his teaching, Jesus changed the position of women in society. He placed them at the same level as men. Although the world, and regrettably the church, 
has been slow to catch up with his teaching on this. Luke also reflects Jesus' care for the poor. He records Jesus identifying with the words of Isaiah. He anointed me to preach good news to the poor in 4.18-21 and in 7.22. And he shows how Jesus fulfilled this. In the parable of the banquet, it's the poor and needy that are gathered in, not the rich who'd originally been invited. That's in 14.16-24. And Jesus also applied it practically when he told people who to invite to parties in 14.13-14. Jesus warned us about a materialistic attitude to life in the parable of the rich fool, 12, 15 to 21, and in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in chapter 16, 19 to 31. Note, it's not for having wealth that the rich men are condemned. It's because of their indifference to human suffering when it was in their power to help. Something perhaps that all of us in the rich West need to take very much to heart. But most of all, in his gospel, Luke shows Jesus as the saviour to the lost. This really is the gospel of the grace of God, free, unmerited love, reaching down to the lowest and least. It's summed up in chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. And Luke 15 shows it quite clearly. He said, for example, in 1 to 2, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. The religious, respectable establishment figures were horrified and scandalized by the company Jesus was keeping. The outcasts, the scum of society. Jesus' response was to tell the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, things that we all know well. Jesus wasn't denying his dinner companions were sinners and lost, alienated from God, but makes the point that God's attitude to, them, attitude to them is the exact opposite of the snobbish Pharisees. God loves the lost. He seeks the lost. They're of value to him. And when the lost are found, God rejoices at their recovery and all heaven shares his joy. That love of God runs right through this gospel, not least in its universal outlook. It shows the gratuitous offer of salvation to the most fallen of mankind, magnifying the fathomless depth of God's love. And that love is an active love. God didn't, God doesn't wait for us to recognize our need and come to him. He sent Jesus to to seek us out, to find us and save us. But there's no place in the kingdom for the self-righteous, the self-sufficient, the self-satisfied. Unless they change their ways and recognize their true situation and need, that before God they are poor, they are weak, they are helpless. What we'll find is, as Mary said in Luke 1, 51 to 53, he scatters the proud and exalts the humble. He satisfies the hungry and sends the rich empty away. All of these strands of of the account and the love of God come together and the love of God is seen most strongly in Luke's account of the crucifixion in Luke 22 to 23. We see Jesus praying in Gethsemane, submitting himself to the, his father's will, 22, 42 to 46. We see him healing the high priest's slave, even if he's arrested. As he's being led out to execution, 
Rather than worrying about his own fate, Jesus is concerned for the daughters of Jerusalem in 23, 27 to 31. We see Jesus' love for everyone as he prayed for forgiveness for the soldiers, even as they hammered uh, the nails through his hands and feet and stripped him naked on the cross. And in his dealing with the penitent thief, that dying man, the hardened criminal, who at the very end of his life recognized his guilt and turned to Jesus. Even he, the lowest of the low, the outcast from society, received forgiveness and salvation. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. But Luke's story doesn't end with Jesus' death. He goes on to describe events around Jesus' resurrection in chapter 24. He stresses the empty tomb. But that alone wasn't enough to convince the disciples. Look at verse 12, 19 to 24. It was Jesus' appearances that dispelled their doubts and kindled their faith in him as a living saviour. The core of this chapter is Luke focusing on the road to Emmaus. And this clearly shows the transforming effect of the resurrection. The two disciples set out with perplexed minds and despondent hearts. They were sad, they were disillusioned and without hope. But as Jesus walked with them, everything changed. He explained so many things in the Bible they never understood, and soon their hearts were aglow. This is what happens when the Jesus of history, the Jesus of head knowledge, intellectual acceptance of a story, becomes the Christ of experience. We can know the stories intellectual, intellectually, but they make no difference to us until we meet the risen, living Lord Jesus. Luke concludes his gospel as it began in the temple, but with a note of joy and praise, leaving us with a note of expectation. The disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God, 2453, setting the scene for the next book. What's going to happen next? So what about us? Well, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be like him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, letting ourselves be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. As it says, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image to one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So practically, how do we reflect the inclusive, universal Jesus depicted, depicted by Luke? How would you react if a homeless person came into our service when we were back in the building? Or a group of travellers? Or someone else that we don't normally consider uh, like us? What are your natural reactions at the thought? Have a look at James 2, 2 to 4, and think about your response. Do we reflect Jesus' concerns for the poor and those considered outcasts by society? What can, what do we do practically to help? And do we go seeking the lost, going to where they are rather than waiting for them to come into the church of their own volition? What more could we do as a body? Yes, as a church, but also as individuals to reach those people. And if you don't know Jesus as your savior, savior, what's the message from Luke? Well, firstly, it's to recognize that you need him. 
No matter how good your life is, you are not righteous enough to earn your way into heaven. No one is. The Pharisees lived by the law of Moses. And not just the law that God gave, but a whole raft of additional rules they had developed to ensure they didn't break God's law. In all their disputes with Jesus, it was never how they lived their lives that brought him his criticism. But despite their religiously flawless life, Jesus was clear it wasn't enough to gain them salvation. Look at Luke 18, 9 to 14, or as in turns over to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 20, he said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But the good news is you don't need to earn your way into heaven. If that gift is available to you as a free offer, thanks to Jesus who paid the debt that you owed on the cross. All you need to do is recognize that you need his forgiveness. You need his grace. You need to repent, turn away from your old sinful way of living and put your trust in Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you do that, you're taking a difficult path. It's not a path that many people follow. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, encouraged us to enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many that go that way. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few that find it. But you don't walk it alone. You walk it side by side with Jesus, empowered by his Holy Spirit. The alternative is to spend an eternity separated from God, tormented by the knowledge of what you could have had instead, instead of being in what is known as hell. God is holding out that gift of eternal life to you, life in abundance, John 10.10, not just after you die, but now, day by day, as you live on earth. The choice is yours. What choice will you make?